Sunday under three heads. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Charles Dickens, 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 5. Sunday under three heads. A dedication and Chapter 1. By Charles Dickens. Dedication To the Right Reverend, the Bishop of London. My Lord, you were among the first, some years ago, to expatiate on the vicious addiction of the lower classes of society to Sunday excursions, and were thus instrumental in calling forth occasional demonstrations of those extreme opinions on the subject which are generally received with derision, if not with contempt. Your elevated station, my lord, affords you countless opportunities of increasing the comforts and pleasures of the humbler classes of society, not by the expenditure of the smallest portion of your princely income, but by merely sanctioning with the influence of your example their harmless pastimes and innocent recreations. That your lordship would ever have contemplated Sunday recreations with so much horror if you had been at all acquainted with the wants and necessities of the people who indulged in them, I cannot imagine possible. That a prelate of your elevated rank has the faintest conception of the extent of those wants and the nature of those necessities, I do not believe. For these reasons, I venture to address this little pamphlet to your lord's consideration. I am quite conscious that the outlines I have drawn afford but a very imperfect description of the feelings they are intended to illustrate. But I claim for them one merit, their truth and freedom from exaggeration. I may have fallen short of the mark, but I have never overshot it. And while I have pointed out what appears to me to be the injustice on the part of others, I hope I have carefully abstained from committing it myself. I am my lord, your lordship's most obedient, humble servant, Timothy Sparks, June, 1836. Chapter 1. As it is. There are few things from which I derive greater pleasure than walking through some of the principal streets of London on a fine Sunday, in summer, and watching the cheerful faces of the lively groups with which they are thronged. There is something, to my eyes at least, exceedingly pleasing in the general desire evinced by the humbler classes of society to appear neat and clean on this, their only holiday. There are many grave old persons, I know, who shake their heads with an air of profound wisdom and tell you that poor people dress too well nowadays, that when they were children, folks knew their stations in life better. That you may depend upon it, no good will come of this sort of thing in the end, and so forth. But I fancy I can discern in the fine bonnet of the working man's wife, or the feather bedizened hat of his child, no inconsiderable evidence of good feeling on the part of the man himself, and an affectionate desire to expend the few shillings he can spare from his week's wages in improving the appearance and adding to the happiness 
of those who are nearest and dearest to him. This may be a very heinous and unbecoming degree of vanity, perhaps, and the money might possibly be applied to better uses. It must not be forgotten, however, that it might very easily be devoted to worse, and if two or three faces can be rendered happy and contented by a trifling improvement of outward appearance, I cannot help thinking that the object is very cheaply purchased, even at the expense of a smart gown or a gaudy riband. There is a great deal of very unnecessary cant about the overdressing of the common people. There is not a manufacturer or tradesman in existence who would not employ a man who takes a reasonable degree of pride in the appearance of himself and those about him, in preference to a sullen, slovenly fellow, who works doggedly on, regardless of his own clothing and that of his wife and children, and seeming to take pleasure or pride in nothing. The pampered aristocrat, whose life is one continued round of licentious pleasures and sensual gratifications, or the gloomy enthusiast, who detests the cheerful amusements he can never enjoy, and envies the healthy feelings he can never know, who would put down the one and suppress the other, until he made the minds of his fellow-beings as besotted and distorted as his own. Neither of these men can possibly form an adequate notion of what Sunday really is to those whose lives are spent in sedentary or laborious occupations, and who are accustomed to look forward to it through their whole existence as their only day of rest from toil and innocent enjoyment. The sun that rises over the quiet streets of London on a bright Sunday morning shines till his setting on gay and happy faces. Here and there, so early as six o'clock, a young man and woman in their best attire may be seen hurrying along on their way to the house of some acquaintance who is included in their scheme of pleasure for the day, from whence, after stopping to take a bit of breakfast, they sally forth, accompanied by several old people and a whole crowd of young ones, bearing large hand-baskets full of provisions, and belcher handkerchiefs done up in bundles, with the neck of a bottle sticking out at the top, and closely packed apples bungling out at the sides, and away they hurry along the streets leading to the steam-packed wharves, which are already plentifully sprinkled with parties bound for the same destination. Their good humor and delight know no bounds, for it is a delightful morning, all blue overhead, and nothing like a cloud in the whole sky, and even the air of the river at London Bridge is something to them, shut up as they have been, all the week, in close streets and heated rooms. There are dozens of steamers to all sorts of places, Gravesend, Greenwich, and Richmond, and such number of people that when you have once sat down on the deck it is all but a moral impossibility to get up again, to say nothing of walking about, which is entirely out of the question. Away they go, joking and laughing, and eating and drinking, and admiring everything they see, and pleased with everything they hear, to climb Windmill Hill, and catch a glimpse of the rich cornfields and beautiful orchards of Kent, or to stroll along the fine old trees of Greenwich Park, and survey the wonders of Shooter's Hill and Lady James's Folly, or to glide past the beautiful meadows of Twickenham and Richmond, and to gaze with a delight which only people like them can know 
on every lovely object in the fair prospect around. A boat follows boat, and coach succeeds coach, for the next three hours. But all are filled, and all with the same kind of people, neat and clean, cheerful and contented. They reach their places of destination, and the taverns are crowded, but there is no drunkenness or brawling, for the class of men who commit the enormity of making Sunday excursions take their families with them, and this in itself would be a check upon them, even if they were inclined to dissipation, which they really are not. Boisterous their mirth may be, for they have all the excitement of feeling that fresh air and green fields can impart to the dwellers in crowded cities, but it is innocent and harmless. The glass is circulated, and the joke goes round, but the one is free from excess, and the other from offence, and nothing but good humour and hilarity prevail. In streets like Holborn and Tottingham Court Road, which form the central market of a large neighbourhood, inhabited by a vast number of mechanics and poor people, a few shops are open at an early hour in the morning, and a very poor man, with a thin and sickly woman by his side, may be seen with their little basket in hand, purchasing the scanty quantity of necessaries they can afford, which the time at which the man receives his wages, or his having a good deal of work to do, or the woman's having been out charring till a late hour, prevented their procuring overnight. The coffee-shops, too, at which clerks and young men employed in counting-houses can procure their breakfasts, are also open. This class comprises, in a place like London, an enormous number of people, whose limited means prevent their engaging for their lodgings any apartment other than a bedroom, and who have consequently no alternative but to take their breakfast at a coffee-shop, or go without it altogether. All these places, however, are quickly closed, and by the time the church-bells begin to ring, all appearance of traffic has ceased. And then, what are the signs of immorality that meet the eye? Churches are well filled, the dissenters' chapels are crowded to suffocation. There is no preaching to empty benches, while the drunken and dissolute populace run riot in the streets. Here is a fashionable church, where the service commences at a late hour for the accommodation of such members of the congregation, and they are not a few, as may happen to have lingered in the opera far into the morning of the Sabbath. An excellent contrivance for poising the balance between God and mammon, and illustrating the ease with which a man's duties to both may be accommodated and adjusted. How the carriages rattle up, and deposit their richly dressed burdens beneath the lofty portico. The powdered footmen glide along the aisle, place the richly bound prayer-books on the pew-desks, slam the doors, and hurry away, leaving the fashionable members of the congregation to inspect each other through their glasses, and to dazzle and glitter in the eyes of the few shabby people in the free seats. The organ peals forth, the hired singers commence a short hymn, and the congregation condescendingly rise, stare about them, and converse in whispers. The clergyman enters the reading-desk, a young man of noble family and elegant demeanour, notorious at Cambridge for his knowledge of horse-flesh and dancers, and celebrated at Eton for his hopeless stupidity. The service commences. Mark the soft voice in which he reads, and the impressive manner in which he applies his white hand 
studded with brilliance, to his perfumed hair. Observe the graceful emphasis with which he offers up the prayers for the king, the royal family, and all the nobility, and the nonchalance with which he hurries over the more uncomfortable portions of the service, the seventh commandment, for instance, with a studied regard for the taste and feeling of his auditors, only to be equaled by that displayed by the sleek divine who succeeds him, who murmurs, in a voice kept down by rich feeding, most comfortable doctrines for exactly twelve minutes, and then arrives at the anxiously expected, Now to God, which is the signal for the dismissal of the congregation. The organ is again heard. Those who have been asleep wake up, and those who have been kept awake smile and seem greatly relieved. Bows and congratulations are exchanged. The livery servants are all bustle and commotion. A bango the steps, up jump the footmen, and off rattle the carriages, the inmates discoursing on the dresses of the congregation, and congratulating themselves on having set so excellent an example to the community in general, and Sunday pleasurers in particular. Enter a less orthodox place of worship, and observe the contrast. A small close chapel with a whitewashed wall, and plain deal pews and pulpit, contains a closely packed congregation, as different in dress as they are opposed in manner to that we have just quitted. The hymn is sung, not by paid singers, but by the whole assembly at the loudest pitch of their voices, unaccompanied by any musical instrument, the words being given out, two lines at a time, by the clerk. There is something in the sonorous quavering of the harsh voices, in the lank and hollow faces of the men, and the sour solemnity of the women, which bespeaks this a stronghold of intolerant zeal and ignorant enthusiasm. The preacher enters the pulpit. He is a coarse, hard-faced man of forbidding aspect, clad in rusty black, and bearing in his hand a small, plain Bible, from which he selects some passage for his text, while the hymn is concluding. The congregation fall upon their knees, and are hushed into profound stillness as he delivers an extempore prayer, in which he calls upon the sacred founder of the Christian faith to bless his ministry in terms of disgusting and impious familiarity not to be described. He begins his oration in a drawling tone, and his hearers listen with silent attention. He grows warmer as he proceeds with his subject, and his gesticulation becomes proportionately violent. He clenches his fists, beats the book upon the desk before him, and swings his arms wildly about his head. The congregation murmur their acquiescence in his doctrines, and a short groan occasionally bears testimony to the moving nature of his eloquence. Encouraged by these symptoms of approval, and working himself up to a pitch of enthusiasm amounting almost to frenzy, he denounces Sabbath-breakers with the direst vengeance of offended heaven. He stretches his body half out of the pulpit, thrusts forth his arms with frantic gestures, and blasphemously calls upon the Deity to visit with eternal torments those who turn aside from the word, as interpreted and preached by himself. A low moaning is heard. The women rock their bodies to and fro, and wring their hands, the preacher's fervor increases, the perspiration starts upon his brow, his face is flushed, and he clenches his hands convulsively 
as he draws a hideous and appalling picture of the horrors prepared for the wicked in a future state. A great excitement is visible among his hearers. A scream is heard, and some young girl falls senseless on the floor. There is a momentary rustle, but it is only for a moment. All eyes are turned toward the preacher. He pauses, passes his handkerchief across his face, and looks complacently round. His voice resumes its natural tone, as with mock humility he offers up a thanksgiving for having been successful in his efforts, and having been permitted to rescue one sinner from the path of evil. He sinks back into his seat, exhausted with the violence of his ravings. The girl is removed, a hymn is sung, a petition for some measure for securing the better observance of the Sabbath, which has been prepared by the good man, is read, and his worshipping admirers struggle who shall be the first to sign it. But the morning service has concluded, and the streets are again crowded with people. Long rows of cleanly dressed charity children, preceded by a portly beadle and a withered schoolmaster, are returning to their welcome dinner, and it is evident from the number of men with beer trays who are running from house to house that no inconsiderable portion of the population are about to take theirs at this early hour. The baker's shops, in the humbler suburbs especially, are filled with men and women and children, each anxiously waiting for the Sunday dinner. Look at the group of children who surround that working man who has just emerged from the baker's shop at the corner of the street, with the reeking dish in which a diminutive joint of mutton simmers above a vast heap of half-browned potatoes. How the young rogues clap their hands and dance round their father, for very joy at the prospect of the feast, and how anxiously the youngest and chubbiest of the lot lingers on tiptoe by his side, trying to get a peep into the interior of the dish. They turn up the street, and the chubby-faced boy trots on as fast as his little legs will carry him, to herald the approach of the dinner to mother, who is standing with a baby in her arms on the doorstep, and who seems almost as pleased with the whole scene as the children themselves, whereupon Baby, not precisely understanding the importance of the business at hand, but clearly perceiving that it is something unusually lively, kicks and crows most lustily, to the unspeakable delight of all the children and both parents, and the dinner is borne into the house amidst a shouting of small voices and jumping of fat legs, which would fill Sir Andrew Agnew with astonishment, as well it might, seeing that baronets, generally speaking, eat pretty comfortable dinners all the week through, and cannot be expected to understand what people feel, who only have a meat dinner on one day out of every seven. The bakings being all duly consigned to their respective owners, and the beer-man having gone his rounds, the church-bells ring for afternoon service. The shops are again closed, and the streets are more than ever thronged with people, some who have not been to church in the morning, going to it now, others who have been to church, going out for a walk, and others, let us admit the full measure of their guilt, a going for a walk, who have not been to church at all. I am afraid this smart servant of all work, who has been loitering at the corner of the square for the last ten minutes, is one of the latter class. She is evidently waiting for somebody, and though she may have made up her mind to go to church with him one of these mornings, I don't think they have any such intention on this particular afternoon. Here he is, at last, the white trousers, blue coat, and yellow waistcoat, 
and more especially that cock of the hat, indicate, as surely as inanimate objects can, that Chalk Farm, and not the parish church, is their destination. The girl colors up, and puts out her hand with a very awkward affectation of indifference. He gives it a gallant squeeze, and away they walk, arm in arm, the girl just looking back towards her place, with an air of conscious self-importance, and nodding to her fellow-servant, who has gone up to the two-pair-stairs window, to take full view of Mary's young man, which being communicated to William, he takes off his hat to the fellow-servant, a proceeding which affords unmitigated satisfaction to all parties, and impels the fellow-servant to inform Miss Emily, confidentially, in the course of the evening, that the young man as Mary keeps company with is one of the most genteelest young men as ever she see. The two young people, who have just crossed the road, and are following this happy couple down the street, are a fair specimen of another class of Sunday, pleasurers. There is a dapper smartness, struggling through very limited means, about the young man, which induces one to set him down at once as a junior clerk to a tradesman or attorney. The girl no one could possibly mistake. You may tell a young woman in the employment of a large dressmaker, at any time, by a certain neatness of cheap finery and humble following of fashion, which pervade her whole attire. But unfortunately there are other tokens not to be misunderstood. The pale face, with its hectic bloom, the slight distortion of form which no artifice of dress can wholly conceal, the unhealthy stoop and the short cough, the effects of hard work and close application to a sedentary employment upon a tender frame. They turn towards the fields. The girl's countenance brightens, and an unwanted glow rises in her face. They are going to Hampstead, or Highgate, to spend their holiday afternoon in some place where they can see the sky, the fields, and trees, and breathe for an hour or two the pure air which so seldom plays upon that poor girl's form or exhilarates her spirits. I would to God that the iron-hearted man who would deprive such people as these of their only pleasures could feel the sinking of heart and soul, the wasting exhaustion of mind and body, the utter prostration of present strength and future hope, attendant upon that incessant toil which lasts from day to day and from month to month, that toil which is too often protracted until the silence of midnight and resumed with the first stir of morning. How marvellously would his ardent zeal for other men's souls diminish after a short probation, and how enlightened and comprehensive would his views of the real object and meaning of the institution of the Sabbath become! The afternoon is far advanced. The parks and public drives are crowded. Carriages, gigs, phaetons, stanhopes, and vehicles of every description glide smoothly on. The promenades are filled with loungers on foot, and the road is thronged with loungers on horseback. Persons of every class are crowded together, here, in one dense mass. The plebeian, who takes his pleasure on no day but Sunday, jostles the patrician, who takes his, from year's end to year's end. You look in vain for any outward signs of profligacy or debauchery. You see nothing before you but a vast number of people, the denizens of a large and crowded city, in the needful and rational enjoyment of air and exercise. It grows dusk. The roads leading from the different places of suburban resort are crowded with people on their return home, 
and the sound of merry voices rings through the gradually darkening fields. The evening is hot and sultry. The rich man throws open the sashes of his spacious dining-room, and quaffs his iced wine in splendid luxury. The poor man, who has no rooms to take his meals in, but the close apartment to which he and his family have been confined throughout the week, sits in the tea-garden of some famous tavern, and drinks his beer in content and comfort. The fields and roads are gradually deserted. The crowd once more pour into the streets, and disperse to their several homes, and by midnight all is silent and quiet, save where a few stragglers linger beneath the window of some great man's house, to listen to the strains of music from within, or stop to gaze upon the splendid carriages which are waiting to convey the guests from the dinner-party of an earl. There is a darker side to this picture, on which, so far from it being any part of my purpose to conceal it, I wish to lay particular stress. In some parts of London, and in many of the manufacturing towns of England, drunkenness and profligacy in their most disgusting forms exhibit in the open streets on Sunday a sad and degrading spectacle. We need go no farther than St. Giles or Drury Lane for sights and scenes of a most repulsive nature. Women with scarcely the articles of apparel which common decency requires, with forms bloated by disease and faces rendered hideous by habitual drunkenness, men reeling and staggering along, children in rags and filth, whole streets of squalid and miserable appearance, whose inhabitants are lounging in the public road, fighting, screaming, and swearing. These are the common objects which present themselves in, these are the well-known characteristics of, that portion of London to which I have just referred. And why is it that all well-disposed persons are shocked, and public decency scandalized by such exhibitions. These people are poor. That is notorious. It may be said that they spend in liquor money with which they might purchase necessaries, and there is no denying the fact. But let it be remembered that even if they applied every farthing of their earnings in the best possible way, they would still be very, very poor." Their dwellings are necessarily uncomfortable, and to a certain degree unhealthy. Cleanliness might do much, but they are too crowded together, the streets are too narrow, and the rooms too small, to admit of their ever being rendered desirable habitations. They work very hard all the week. We know that the effect of prolonged and arduous labor is to produce, when a period of rest does arrive, a sensation of lassitude which it requires the application of some stimulus to overcome. What stimulus have they? A Sunday comes, and with it a cessation of labor. How are they to employ the day? What inducements have they to employ it in recruiting their stock of health? They see little parties, on pleasure excursions, passing through the streets, but they cannot imitate their example, for they have not the means. They may walk, to be sure, but it is exactly the inducement to walk that they require. If every one of these men knew that by taking the trouble to walk two or three miles he would be enabled to share in a good game of cricket or some athletic sport, I very much question whether any of them would remain at home. But you hold out no inducement. You offer no relief from listlessness. 
You provide nothing to amuse his mind. You afford no means of exercising his body. Unwashed and unshaven, he saunters moodily around, weary and dejected. In lieu of the wholesome stimulus he might derive from nature, you drive him to the pernicious excitement to be gained from art. He flies to the gin-shop as his only resource, and when, reduced to a worse level than the lowest brute in the scale of creation, he lies wallowing in the kennel, you saintly lawgivers lift up your hands to heaven, and exclaim for a law which shall convert the day intended for rest and cheerfulness into one of universal gloom, bigotry, and persecution. End of chapter 1